This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Equity Minds! I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is you Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going? I'm very good, Bryce. I'm excited for this interview. We uh, first heard this speaker at ASX Investor Day. Um, we were sitting in the audience, and uh, we thought it was such a good presentation that we've asked him to join us on the podcast, and we want to have the similar discussion again because we thought it deserved to be shared. That's it. It's our pleasure to welcome to the studio, James Holt. James, uh, welcome. Thank you. Wonderful to be here. Thanks, guys. So James is a director of investment solutions at Perpetual. And uh, as we've spoken about on the show before, Perpetual is an Australian fund manager and is one of Australia's oldest companies founded in 1886. Today, we're speaking to James about finding those hidden investment gems amongst all of the noise at the moment, COVID, market falls, inflation and war, so much going on. Uh, we're going to unpack it all. Uh, thank you to Perpetual for supporting and sponsoring this episode as well. You can head to perpetual.com.au to find plenty of information on what they offer. But um, as Ren said, James, uh, y- your presentation covered a lot at the ASX Investor Day and it, w- and it was fascinating. So we're going to unpack it all. But uh, Ren, first we start with... Uh, Let's start with the investment story. Yeah, so James, we always like to start with people the story of people's first investment. We find there's a good story or a good lesson that often comes out of it. So to kick us off today, what was uh, your very first investment? <clears throat> Look, I'd probably have to say it was Coles Meyer, back when it was Coles okay. Meyer, back in the day, many, many years ago. And I, I can't remember if I didn't buy it myself, so to speak. I, I was either too young or too poor or whatever it was, but I convinced mum to invest, you know. So she bought <laughs> these Coles Meyer shares back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. And look, I thought they were a good price and I, and I really like the, 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 the company and, uh, you know, there are all sorts of things that went on with Coles Meyer back then as well. But I just love this idea of owning a conglomerate that had Coles as the core sort of supermarket. Um, what got mum over the line is that you got a shareholder discount, consumer discount card as well, you know, uh-huh. if you bought the shares. So <laughs> yes. she, she was, mum's a very, very smart person and, um, and sort of could get the, the investment thesis and like the idea and had the dividend reinvestment plan as well. But that, I think it had all the elements of a great 
great investment, right? Because it it didn't sort of didn't sort of shoot the lights out year you know year in year out. It just sort of steadily grew. Her, her shares accumulated. The dividends kept on pouring out. It was just a just a great great investment. Nice. Yeah. Well, I don't think they give a discount card to shareholders anymore. So <laughs> no, maybe no, they, <laughs> they cut it out. They cut it out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so James, from that moment uh, to to now, you've had plenty of experience in markets. Have you developed uh, an investment philosophy? Yeah, look, I'd say I'm I'm pretty value oriented. Having said that, value is not enough in its own right. You know, so you've got to, you know, I don't believe in necessarily, you know, using the value index or buying low price to book. You know, you don't want to own the best buggy whip manufacturer. You know, just before <laughs> it goes out of business, it's I bet it was high quality. You know, as uh, <laughs> as uh, that, that they say in that film, um, other people's money. So you want an element of growth or quality as well. You want to have, uh, you need to have a lens. Over over it to make sure you're not buying something that's going to go out of business. So, look, I've had a whole lot of learnings. You know, the good times and the bad times never last forever. You know, it's always darkest before the dawn. Um, you know, these these are all critical things I've sort of had. This is my third bubble. If you count COVID bubble as a, as a bubble, I've been through tech and I've been through – and you read about them in history books, you know what I mean? You read about the South Sea bubble and the Tulip Mania and you just think, surely, you know, people could not have been that mad. But it's only when you've been through one. I think the 90s was a critical one. People whip themselves into a frenzy, you know, and that's when you start to pay, you know, you you know, growth at any price sort of thing, and and so you, I, you definitely, I definitely like to have that sort of value orientation, but um, I'm always wary of the herds and, and and those sort of things, and you know, two or three things really matter that can drive a stock. So uh, I think that's where you've also got to got to be focused. Don't get too bogged down in the minutiae. It's important to cover your tracks and read the the annual report and, and all the details, but but often you find. You, you the th- within within a, a couple of key decisions. That's when your, your thesis is there. But generally, you know, it's always said, you know, invest in what you know. I'd take it a step further. Invest how you'd shop. We love to shop for bargains. We like to get a, a deal. The people sort of almost invest the other way around. They want to pay for things when they're the most expensive. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's that's the experience of bubble mania, right? And instead, if you just sort of if you're patient, you're steady, you keep a bit of cash on the side, even the best quality stocks at some point will become bargains or or acceptable rate of return, and that's the time to buy them. You know, patience will always win out. Yeah, well, I think that's a great uh, lead into what we're talking about today because uh, at the ASX Day, you, your presentation was about finding those hidden investment gems amongst all the noise. And, you know, we talk about uh, stocks being on sale and some stocks are down, you know, 90% plus at the moment. Um, so it, it's a good time to be looking for those hidden investment gems. And, uh, the real starting point for you uh, in your presentation, and I think the starting point for most conversations about investing and financial markets these days is inflation. Is it transitory? Is it structural? What's going on? Is there a new normal? And that leads into interest rates. So let's let's start there. We've had 2021 where transitory was the word and 2022 that word has sort of dropped out of our lexicon a little bit. Where, where's your head at uh, and where's Perpetual's head at about inflation at the moment? So so right, Alec. And, and also remember we did, we had transitory for longer as well, don't yeah. remember that? <laughs> <laughs> Which is one of, the, one of the great, you know, so we had transitory, transitory. And I guess, look, for our, our, our journey here and was really begun with um, talking to CEOs. One of the great advantages of, you know, having a, we, we do a lot of investments with Perpetual, you know, primarily a stock picking house. 
us. And we talked to hundreds and hundreds of CEOs and um, CFOs and, and all the people in the business. And it was very clear early on that there was something, uh, you know, quite serious on the inflation front coming through. And I think it was Woolworths who sort of said, you know, normally look out of 10 items, they can normally manage the, you know, uh, it might be one or two that are a bit inflationary, but they can sort of spread the inflation through the system and keep prices low and and, and so forth and, and sort of manage it that way. But instead they had 80 to 90% of all items going up in price. There was price pressures. And remember, there was there's two elements, obviously. There's the demand element. So people were, there was massive stimulus, you know, and in hindsight, clearly the stimulus was too much and Larry Summers in the US sort of talked about that. I think we manage it pretty well here, but of course, everything emanates from the US. So when the US overstimulated to the extent that it did, that sort of that sort of ripple effect came across here as well. And in fact, you know, everything we've had has just been a few months behind the US. So we were shocked when the US hit seven, eight percent inflation. It's not going to happen here. It did, it has. It's just taken a bit longer to get here, right? Mm. And the other side of it, of course, is supply side driven as well. So at first blanche, you'd say, well, Look, it does seem transitory and eventually the, you know, they'll, they'll build enough container ships and, and the container ships will be, will be better organized and, you know, the big surge in demand will come back to earth again. So an element of it is transitory. There's no doubt about it. Some things will come back to earth again and it won't be a problem. However, however, the last 30 years, you've got to ask yourself, I did study economics and economic history, but as well, which I think was, was very good to sort of put things into perspective. And that is that. Is the, la- is the last 30 years, is that normal or was that just sort of a lucky, you know, benefit of history that, that we kind of lived through? Because if you go back the last two or 300 years, the last 30 years looks really abnormal, you know. And in fact, we often have inflationary periods and we often have periods where there's a lot of dislocation and whatever. So there's definitely a transitory element. The thing we do, worry, we do sort of worry about is that, you know, is there sort of this more sustained inflation coming out of it? And things like the trade war or deglobalization, the last time we had it, it went on for 30 years, 1914 to 1945, you know. So the best intentions to kind of fix it in, in the 1920s, 1930s just didn't occur. The war, it'll be next thing you know, you're sort of off to the races and you just can't fix it up. Um, we've had actual war. We don't know how long it's going to last in Ukraine, you know. Um, it could, people, some people want it to end at the end of this year and are hopeful of that. But as we know, <laughs> you know, three months, six months wars are not that common. They usually go on for a bit longer and it might drag on for two years. That's a problem. Um, not just energy, but wheat, getting grains out. You know, a government's, you know, will they reach for the one thing about the stimulus was hell, it was effective, wasn't it? Remember how hopeless yeah. the post GFC stimulus was? It mm. never took it took years to, to hit to get traction. So maybe that's more effective. You then get follow on inflation into rents and things like that. That's still yet to occur. Um, and look, one thing I was interested in is that. There is data out of the IMF that was published many years ago that showed that ageing can be inflationary or disinflationary. And we've just had, ironically, the last 30 years, the deflationary aspect of it. And what they're talking about is the, the population cohort of baby boomers. They're in exactly the right place at exactly the right time. You know, they entered their 20s and 30s and the 70s. They contributed to low inflation from that era onwards. They're now retiring and they're drawing down on that titanic amount of savings they've built up. Mm. And... If you model it all up, and the IMF modelled it, we should have more inflation for the next couple of decades, you know. So maybe we can't control it. Maybe that's sort of the benefit we got. And the last thing is just inflationary expectations. Mm. You know, that's the big worry. So, again, 
you know, anchor, you'll hear me talk about anchoring a lot from time to time because people get anchored on things. They get at the last five years, 10 years, whatever, that becomes a new normal. That's where you get the term, you know, house prices never fall because if they haven't fallen for five years, people think that's expected and inflation's the same. If they see inflation for one, two, three years, next thing, they expect it and that's suddenly what the central banks have said they're worried about but that's that's that that is something certainly to be to be fearful of that people expect it they bake it in they make these massive wage claims you get this wage price spiral coming out at the end there's a lot of factors there that you touched on and you know some that are spoken about a lot the stimulus and the the war in ukraine but i think some of those that uh, are not discussed as much uh, you mentioned demographics and the cost of healthcare and that i guess moving from a saving and investing mindset to a spending mindset in retirement for baby boomers. Another one that you talked about in your presentation was decarbonisation, which I thought was really interesting because, you know, from an investing lens, we're all hearing so much about ESG and all of that, but people don't often think about the uh, inflation impacts of of some of these new technologies and new changes and, and stuff like that. So, do you want to just uh, quickly explain uh, the link between decarbonisation and potential inflation? Yeah, and and you know, in the in the long term, uh, you know, as, as as Kane said, in the long term we're all dead, of course. But <laughs> but in the long term, you know, maybe the inflation sort of comes out of the system again. And I think when you, you actually go through the process of putting everything in place, it does. But in the short to medium term, it's hard to see how it's not inflationary. And in fact, that you'll see it, it won't take long to find literature out there talking about this as a problem, right? Because do you impose a carbon tax, um, which is instantly inflationary? You know, if in Europe, if you applied, um, you know, their sort of carbon pricing to cement, for example, the price of cement goes up by about 70% or thereabouts. Carbon's everywhere. You know, that's the thing. Uh, we're even based on carbon, you know, as humans. So there's carbon out there. How do you do it? Do you impose a tax? Do you do the investment? Um, Germany has spent, I think, three seven hundred and fifty billion dollars on on renewables, and their price of energy is about fifty percent higher than us, double of the US. So, uh, I should say as well, I think it's a, I think it's a, I think it's laudable. It's a laudable goal to decarbonize. You know, I think. Um, I think we should, but I think the critical thing is we've probably got to accept that it will cost more, certainly in the short to medium term, before you get the benefits of it. And also, look, at the time when we're drawing down on capital you know, accumulated savings, the amount to be invested in decarbonisation is, is again, mammoth. You know, it is many, many tens of trillions of dollars. So, you think about, again, if you think about the long-term trajectory for interest rates, you know, we've had for this long period this massive savings pool coming out of Asia as it entered the world economy. Um, we've had the baby boomers in the market earning. But as those things change, maybe we don't have the same trade relationships. We have the boomers retire, you know, and have interest rates at really low levels. I mean, it's seems a bit too good to be true, doesn't it? You know, and so you'd think that that would put some pressure on inflation rates uh, to, to do it. So I think laudable goal, but I think also we've probably got to be realistic about the cost, uh, certainly in the, in, the, in the next few years as, as it gets implemented. Mm. And lastly, one thing the thing is we're dealing with is that the demand for nickel, you know, we're very heavily invested in green metals because we think they'll benefit from the electrification of cars and things like that. But if you add up the total amounts required to make all the cars, it's just, again, it's off the scale, mm. you know, and there won't be enough and that'll create its own inflation and, and, and so on as well. James, I just want to touch on central banks because it's safe to say that they've got it pretty wrong, you would you, you would say. The RBA here in Australia said they're not going to 
They weren't going to raise rates until 2024. And they've come out and said, look, I think we got that call wrong. And Jerome Powell over in the States has similarly said the same thing, that they probably have, have got the call that inflation was transitory and, and now it certainly feels like it's here to stay. At Perpetual, what are your views on the response from central banks at the moment? Do you think they're doing enough? Do you like? Do you feel that the response is adequate? Do you give much weighting to the commentary that they are sending out at the moment? What's What's the view from Perpetual? Yeah, we look. We certainly. It's a tough job. You know, it really is a hard job, and um, I think uh, we do. You know, the, the shift, the pivot they've made towards realising that, you know, the forecast, I think, I think you know, Dr. Lowe said the forecasts were, were pretty poor. They certainly were. Um, and he's, he's fronted up around that, you know, you can say that again. But, you know, it is a tough job and it is hard to get these sort of things right. Look, I think, I think they're really very data dependent as well. And they're also, I think the Fed and the Reserve Bank are in very different positions where the Fed clearly is tightening and there's a feeling that the, the Fed will actually head into recession and they might be ahead of the curve compared to us. That is certainly something I think, so you may see, and the Fed's more activist, right? So they'll tend to hike rates very quickly and then at some point in the next 6, 12 months, as it's clear there might be a recession coming, uh, if that starts to show up in jobs data, they've made it, you know, pretty clear that they'll start cutting again. Mm. That's certainly the expectation. And so you may see this sort of funny position of we've got to, we've got to hike them before we have to cut them again. Yeah. <laughs> so that's just one of those those things. The Reserve Bank, we could be in a different position because everyone's focused on two things, right? They're focused on the fact that um, there's so much accumulated savings. You know, we've got 250, 280 billion of savings accumulated, which is massive firepower, even though consumer confidence is starting to get dented. The job situation is very good, but I think the one thing we have here in Australia is the terms of trade, the China story. And China's been on a different path. Clearly, they've been doing different things. They're doing, you know, they're still pursuing COVID zero. They're trying to, you know, tame their property market. It's a pretty messy thing. But you've got to ask yourself, and the reason this is so important is because for the last 20 years, they've been our get out of jail card. Mm. You know, we should have had, arguably we should have had a couple of recessions in the last 20 years. We we overtook the Netherlands and had the longest track record of never having a recession, 29 years. Then COVID struck. But of course, everyone's in recession. You can't help fall into recession then. But if in the situation before that, what we found was we were probably having domestic recessions, but we kept on getting our external position bailed out by China. So you may find, and, and nobody can forecast this for sure, but don't be surprised if, say, the reserve, the, the Fed's cut right, hiking rates, then they're cutting them again. We're hiking rates maybe a little bit behind the Fed uh, to try and keep up. But then you know what? We aren't forced into cutting because if the Fed, you know, the US has a recession, but if China recovers, there's no guarantee we have a recession as well. That's not, you know, that's not baked into the stars. That's that's something still to be determined. And I only say that because it's happened so many times before. Mm. We know China's in a slump. If COVID goes endemic, if they declare an end of the pandemic, there's no more COVID zero required and, and whatever, you know, China could come out of this out of the stocks booming, you know, yeah. in, the, in the latter half of this year or next year. Who knows? But I think the, the Reserve Bank and the, and the Fed are in very different positions. And usually the, the Reserve Bank tends to raise rates, stay pat for a bit, then raise rates again, stay pat. So we could be doing the raising but not necessarily the cutting, maybe even, you know, who knows, a bit more hiking potentially as well. So, James, uh, inflation was transitory, then it was structural, and then inflation expectations uh, start to rise. Bond yields increase as a result. 
interest rates get uh, start to get raised, growth stocks sell off, crypto sells off, NFTs tank, <laughs> <laughs> and then that that goes to the broader stock market, and that's sort of where we're at now. I guess where does this all go from here? Where do, where do things settle? I know these are big questions, um, mm. and the ultimate question that every millennial wants to ask. Does this sell-off in assets extend to housing? But let's put a pin in housing for now and let's talk about um, interest rates in the stock market. Where do you think interest rates settles? Where do you think the stock market settles? Um, what's the what, what's your sort of short to medium term outlook? It's worth noting as well, just backing up a little bit, that the bond market's right nine times out of 10, you know, compared to equities. And so there was that signal that bonds were, you know, equities were really sanguine and, you know, a bit, you know, very optimistic all the time. <laughs> Whereas bonds sort of rose up very quickly, put that pin into into um, equities. We did see, I think, if you look at what's happened, the small cap sector has been hit hardest, both in the US and Australia. So you think about, you know, all those meme stocks that Jim Cramer sort of <laughs> talked about last year. They're all they're all they're all down ninety percent. Right, mm. they've all been napalmed. And the same in Australia, the zips and the sizzles of the world are all down. You know, eight, you know, ninety ninety five percent or thereabouts. So they've been hit very hard. We refer to them as concept stocks, and you know, again, the concept is fine. You've just got to have cash at some point, especially when the price of money is really really rocketing through the roof. And I think the bond market really called out all this stuff because you know Australian bonds, ten-year bonds hit four point two percent or thereabouts. I think of four point one five. So that's if you look at the last, that's a that's a dramatic break with the trend over over the last couple of decades. So clearly the the bonds sort of signal there's something different here about inflation in the system, which they they kind of wanted to to speak about. I think Jim Cramer's even said that equities. <laughs> he's always got a great turn of phrase. Said equities are being held hostage by bonds at the moment. You know so. <laughs> James Carville once said in the US that, you know, he wants to come back as the bond market because he can rule the world, you know, because it just sort of drives every other bit of activity in the global system. So, look, um, definitely speared. The small cap sector has been hit. Large caps have been a little bit hit, but not too bad. So, you know, if you think about that meme complex hit first, the FANG stocks primarily you know, a little bit of it, you know, Facebook got hit, obviously, Netflix got hit, but then the others have, you know, sagged a bit, but they're not too bad, mm. you know, so is there more room for them to decline? And again, I think we've got to think about these in a couple of different ways. First of all, a PE of 25, 30, it's not like a P of 100, but if the market decides it wants to put everything on a P of 10 to 15 times, there's still a lot of room to fall, right? You know, that's number one. Number two, with a lot of these stocks, you've got to look at the scale of the earnings. So a $2 trillion stock that's on a P of 20, it's earning $100 billion NPAT per annum. That's And it's in tech where every year there's a new tech company out to gouge that company and grab market share and, and put it in the dustbin of history. Tech companies live a lot shorter lives generally than, than other companies, right? I know they're kind of monopolies, a lot of things, and that's an argument as well. But you know, we've seen many of these companies drop through history, you know. Um, Sears Roebuck was invincible once, now it's bankrupt, you know. Um, at, you know, dominant uh, handset device makers, you know, ruled the roost, you know, they can knock you, then they're gone, BlackBerry gone. So just because you've got a massive market share and you appear to have a monopoly doesn't mean you, it's going to be guaranteed. And if you've got a $100 billion NPAT a year company, for the next 10 years, they're going to make a trillion dollars worth of NPAT. In the face of competition, new technology, regulators, that's a big ask, isn't it? You know what I mean? So that's where I think 
you know, we have seen Netflix and Facebook affected and, and the others don't seem to be as badly affected, but that could still happen to them. So I think you've got to keep an eye on how big the NPAT is and how big a target that is and therefore that might be vulnerable at some point. And then you turn to Australia, the same sort of thing here. So the small caps have been hit, the big caps have been unaffected. And if you look through time, what tends to happen is, and look, I've, you know, I, I, we love CSL. We think CSL is a fantastic company. It's a bit too expensive for us. And it's on 30, 35, 38 times. That's a big price for a big company that grows pretty slowly, no matter how high quality it is. And again, if you flip that PE of 35 times around, what is it? That's a, that's a, that's a earnings yield of 3%. Well, the bond market's paying you four. Mm. So what on top of the 3% earnings yield, what extra equity risk premium do you put on top of a CSL? Should it be 2%, 25 1.5%, whatever? So you've got to say, well, here's a company that's an equity that, that people are putting um, as you know, less risk on than the bond market itself, sovereign bonds in terms of the equity risk premium. Again, it doesn't make sense. Um, so, look, it may never happen. Nothing may ever happen. That, that may never correct, right? But CSL has corrected previously in history. A very different company sort of 20 years ago. It did fall quite significantly. And people were very excited. I remember people being very excited about it in 2001, 2003. Then it got cut very severely before it recovered, bought out a competitor and regained its place. But that's not to say it can't happen again. Or the other thing that happens is that you may not collapse. You may not have the 50, 30, 40, 60% share correction, whatever it is. But you know what? You get stuck in, in what, I, what I call the Woolworths position of many years ago, which is that Woolworths just went nowhere for nearly a decade from 2007 to 2013, 14. It just stayed at the same price and it grew into its earnings. And the same thing happened to Microsoft before. So Microsoft actually fell. 75% from 2000 to 2009, so it did actually fall, but then it didn't get back to where it was until 2015 or 16 or 17, back into the 2000 level. And look at Cisco. This Cisco has never traded, I think, still above where it was in 2000. So it's not so much the, um, you know, you get really expensive, you get either crash in price or you just go sideways for years and that becomes a problem for investors. So, again, you're almost being better off being invested almost anywhere else. Anything that generates a real return to give you, you know, the, the, the sort of, um, you know, the sort of uh, real return you need to, to get out of there again. So, James, before we uh, take a quick break and then t uh, turn our attention to finding gems uh, in this environment, uh, it's a good place to have a quick chat about housing. There's been plenty of discussion that we're now starting to see it cool. Uh, we've seen some of the bubbliest markets around the world start to um, to come off as well, and Australia is always lumped in that um heap of one of the hottest uh, property markets in the world. So with uh, with NFTs down, crypto down, growth assets hit, uh, interest rates rising, inflation you know, now at a point where it feels like it's here to stay, what, what's your view on housing and, and where to from here for, for that asset class? Yeah, look, it's a good question. I think we will have a reasonable correction in house prices. So that'll, that'll decline sort of I think the forecasts that are out there sort of, you know, 10, 15, 20% are pr pretty on the money. You know, it might be a case of 10% one year, 5% the next, or 5 and 10 or, or whatever. We'll wind up in that 15 to 20% uh, correction zone. They've had a very good run. Same thing is going on in the US. I mean, the US housing bubble, 03 to 07. They've had the same thing again, but it only took one year <laughs> to get there. Mm. So it's a global phenomenon. Um, it's hit us pretty hard here as well in terms of rising valuations. It'll come down the other side. Look, I think 
the actual quantum of correction is less important than the impact it'll have. It'll definitely have an impact on uh, on consumption. I mean, most people don't have their money in the stock market. Most average people, punters, have their money in the housing market. So the impact of you know, correction house prices, there have been lots of studies, it has sort of two to three times the impact of a correction in the, in the stock market. So that will certainly hit things. The question will be, does the, you know, the 280 billion in cash, which is roughly 10% of GDP, 15% of GDP, does that offset the kind of negative housing correction? Does the super strong jobs market, does that offset it as well to a degree? Does it occur in one year or two years? If it occurred in one year, I think we'd be in trouble, right? But if it probably spread over two years, it may be more absorbable. And I think, again, if you look back at a few rough periods like 2012, 13, the GFC period itself, we had stimulus during the GFC, but the real thing that got us out of trouble was, again, the China uh, recovery, you know. So again, so much swings on that sort of uh, that sort of external environment, which is why I think people are quite ready to call the likelihood of a US recession, you know, and, and people are talking 70, 80% probability. I put that much lower in Australia. I think it'll be a painful period. Consumers will feel it, but we may have one of those periods again where GDP actually stays positive. Um, but, uh, you know, consumers feel a, a pretty nasty um, uh, 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 sort of run, but they don't necessarily, doesn't translate into negative GDP. Worth noting as well that in the tech wreck in 2000, the US market fell, I think, 43%, you know, if you include September 11 as well. We didn't even have a correction here. Mm. We actually didn't have a correction. So I think, in fact, it only fell by single digits in total. And and you look earlier this year, remember, the, the US stock market fell, fell quite dramatically. NASDAQ was down. Our market nearly didn't fall nearly as much. We've had a bit of a fall in, in recent weeks. Mm. It's sort of caught up with us a little bit. But, um, but again, because our tech sector is not, 25, 27%, like the US is only about 3%. You know, it's pretty small. Um, we're like a giant, Australia's like a giant hedge fund in a way, you know, like it's sort of in a good way, I mean, um, because, you know, if the, you think about how well balanced the market is, if if the global economy booms or China booms, iron ore takes off and that leaves the BHPs and the Rios going. If the world goes to hell, we've got huge gold stocks here in Australia that also benefit, you know, mm. and we've got a, a decent share of financials and consumer stocks to balance it out as well. Whereas I think... The challenge in the US has been that tech sector has become bigger and bigger and bigger over time, and uh, it is prone to these periods of evaluation as well as as well as correction. So I think that's okay. On crypto, and I didn't mention that before. Sorry, um, Bryce, you did mention it, but look, I understand what they're trying to do. I can actually even understand the whole attraction of deregulated currency and digital currency and, and so on and so forth. What I've never really gotten though is that if you can make 20,000 currencies or 50,000 currencies or 100,000 currencies, how can they all be really valuable? And secondly, why would governments ever want them to succeed? Because most of these currencies, of course, 70 or 80% of them are retained by their originators, right, and the, and the owners. So, it, I mean, I think the central banks have got problems. The alternative to handing over you know, multi-trillion dollar worth to all these crypto people around the world who are not in the purview of government or regulators or anything like that, that just doesn't seem at all sane, right? So I, I think that was kind of, I think that was a logic. And even a tech guy told me, you know, at, look, remember, our capitalism, which I'm a strong believer in, the great thing about it is it's about necessities in search for invention, right? 
that's what drives capitalism. We need something. Someone goes out and makes it and, and, and happy days. Crypto feels like an invention in search of a necessity. You know what I mean? It's almost the reverse way around. And that's, that's usually a problem. So you've, you've I, I don't think, I think when we've got other digital currencies and other digital forms of transaction, we were kind of, everyone was kind of scratching our heads as to what was the, what was the new special need being solved here? There didn't seem to be one. Well, James, there's a whole other podcast we could do on crypto, but uh, <laughs> let's, let's okay. stick with uh, stocks today. Um, we, we've really covered the macro, you know, the inflation and the interest rate environment uh, and what we're sort of living through at the moment. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. And then on the other side of it, we really want to get into the stock specific stuff. We want to talk about how we can find those hidden investment gems. So we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back to talk about that. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. So, James, before the break, we spoke a lot about what's going on in the macro environment. We have inflation, we have rising interest rates, uh, except in Japan, they're holding out. But um, the majority of the world is is raising rates and uh, the majority of markets are down in 2022. But that creates an opportunity for investors, for those that are willing to be greedy when others are fearful, uh, there might be some opportunities. And so that's that's what we really want to pick your brain about in the second half of this episode. And I guess the starting point for us in your ASX Day presentation, you shared a number of categories which um, uh, Perpetual, uh, I guess, are finding interesting at the moment. We can you sort of use them as signposts to talk about a few stocks that uh, you think might be some of those hidden gems. So the first was uh, stocks that are going to benefit because food and energy inflation are likely to persist. And uh, there was one company uh, that you called out in your presentation, Santos. Do you want to talk about why you think that's an interesting category and then why Santos over you know, a Woodside or some of the other resource or energy plays that, that are available? Yeah, look, it's a good question. So, um, look, San, I mean, the theme itself, sort of food and energy, you know, we've, you know, clearly they, they were sort of clear targets for inflation. Um, we've held a lot of things over the years, the grain corps of the world. We've held, um, you know, Intertech Pivot as well, which, which was, you know, more or less sold most of recently. People, 
you know, during during dry periods, a lot of those stocks go begging and that's a good time to buy. And then the wet comes and the, you know, people need fertiliser, they want to plant crops, the gra- the crops go, you know, um, the, the harvest is fantastic and, and, and whatever. So you tend to get a great sort of lift on that. Um, Santos is probably one we're, we're most excited about now and is a very big position in, in a lot of our portfolios. So I think there's probably, you know, a couple of things here. Obviously, there's there's been a merger with, with Oil Search. It's primarily a gas producer with with big assets in in Papua New Guinea. Gas is a key transition energy. You know, it has less emissions than oil. Uh, and over time, as we do see this sort of shift, we can't make the shift overnight to to renewables. Um, even if you get the the you know the the, the windmills and the solar panels right, um, and they're getting there. You've you've also got to store the energy. So gas will always be a a kind of a transitional energy for for a long period of time. There'll always be some gas around. Gas can also be switched on and off too. Unlike coal, we've got to keep the coal sort of turning over all the time, which is one thing that that people point to as well. Yeah, having said that as well, they do um, they do have uh, carbon capture and storage facilities as well, uh, which which sort of helps to get to, to reduce their carbon footprint as well. So uh, strong balance sheet, um, gearing ratio about about twenty six percent. So clearly benefiting from the, the tightness in energy markets. Europe wants to import more gas. We think they'll benefit from that. There's ongoing disruptions, obviously, and also critically for us. Asset sell down. So, look, one thing that's co- sort of held the stock back a bit is that have they got this is a nice problem to have. Have they got too many projects? Have they got too, so many assets they've got to exploit? Are they going to struggle to kind of uh, develop them all? So, do they sell one of them? Do they sell down? You know, they've got a 42 42.5% stake in uh, PNG, uh, LNG. Do they sell part of that? Um, they've got a stake in um, other projects. Projects in in WA. Do they sell a bit of that? They got um, they got uh, another project in in Alaska. Do they sell a bit of that? So look, our expectation is they would, you know, sell roughly two to three billion dollars worth of assets, and that would reduce their gearing again. That would give them cash. We'd see more cash flow, the ability to to, to pay high dividends and things like that, um, and also reduce the burden of their of their capex expenditure. So. I think the assets good. You think about the two or three things that drove a stock, right? The assets are good. Um, the the, the company is in a very good position. They got options as far as what they can do, um, and uh, it's um, it's it's it. There is a catalyst you can see there via the asset sell downs to kind of re-rate the stock upwards from where it is. Another, I guess, area or thematic where we're able to find some gems, uh, James, is in green metals. So zinc, copper. Cobalt, I guess, maybe one. Yeah, sinking copper. Yeah, why? Why is this area still attractive for you? The demand ongoing is going to be absolutely enormous. You know, so uh, you think about the electrification of vehicles. We're still, I think, only two percent of cars are electrified. So there's uh, that's a good growth market for you right there. Right, it's yeah. <laughs> it's going to go ahead for a long, long, long period of time. Mm. Um, and all the forecasts we see are that. Um, that uh, that basically market will struggle to keep up with the demand required for those commodities. So one, for example, is uh, Jevois, uh, which is uh, listed in Australia, um, and we first started buying that in 2021. Uh, it's uh, been entered into the FTSE World Index uh, early this year and also into uh, the ASX 300 Index as well, so it does get a bit more coverage now than it did before. You know, 
cobalt nickel uh, are key assets there. Uh, one thing, obviously, that um, is that they've got a cobalt mine in, in the US. They've also got one, a, a, um, a refinery in Finland. So, you know, you think about one, one issue with cobalt is that people don't like uh, where cobalt is mined currently in in uh, some unsavoury parts of the world. So this provides an option that's outside of it. It's uh, it's mined in, in more in a more sustainable part of the world, uh, and uh, and I think uh, that looks 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 very attractive to us long term. Also, Aluka, I think is the other one that's that's very attractive in that in that space. So look, they've got you know they spun off their Detura royalty, which we also have owned as well. So they which was an iron ore royalty and didn't didn't quite fit as well with them. Uh, Rutile and Zircon, biggest producer in the world, but also the other big thing with uh, with uh, Aluka is that it's expanding into rare earths. And again, this is one of those things along with those other commodities you mentioned that that we need and and at the moment china has the vast majority of rare earths in the world which has obviously uh been raised eyebrows in in uh, in the sort of post covid era they're actually spending 1.2 billion dollars on a refinery near perth um, it's got federal government support as well clearly there's a desire to have uh these sort of critical assets these sort of critical green metals being manufactured in in uh in other parts of the world and so these 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 sort of stocks are key beneficiaries of that trend it is a fascinating space james um we are running out of time and i do want to ask uh about a couple of stocks that are of less interest, including one that definitely gets tongues wagging in the equity mates community. So uh, I'll just quickly list um, the the other categories that you spoke about in your presentation, uh, business models with interest rates as tailwinds and IAG was an example there, uh, spending on experiences as you know everything sort of reopened. Qantas and event hospitality and entertainment were two companies mentioned there. And uh, then founder-led stocks, uh, Premier Investments was an example there. But let's get to stocks of less interest. And you mentioned uh, concept stocks earlier. They're not of interest now, uh, uh, according to your presentation, even though some are down 80 to 90%. And you mentioned Zip there, and Zip is the company that probably gets the most discussion in the equity mates community. Do they ever become interesting again? Like, is there a point where you start to look at maybe not Zip or Sezzle, but some of those concept stocks and start to say it makes sense? Yeah, it's a great question. It's a great (laughs) question. I think, you know, that particular place because because you make a lot of money if you get it right you know let's face it alongside all the the you know the enrons and the and the and the world comms amazon was down 90 percent at one mm. point maybe even more you know and recovered and made a fortune for people uh and there are plenty of stocks in that space but i think if you look at uh but then again we've also had the one tools right as well in australia and the, and and you know went to god along with um along with uh davnet and a few others so look i would say I'd yeah look there's not we we really require kind of proof of earnings for it to become interesting to us so we do have and it's probably been mentioned before by by Vince and Nathan but we do have four quality filters so debt has got to be fairly low uh, or energy's got to be able to cover it to a reasonable degree uh, recurring earnings quality of business quality of industry and most of those stocks fail almost all those filters right because yeah, yeah, they, may, yeah. they may have they may have a wonderful entrepreneur at the head. But where's the recurring earnings? Um, where's the cash to cover debt? And are they in a quality industry or are they in a good position in, a, in, a, in an industry, a quality business in a good industry? Um, and that's the number one problem you've got. And then in the buy now, pay later space, I think the big challenge 
will not be return on your money. It'll be return of your money because if we do have consumers going to struggle in the next couple of years, you think about, I said we would avoid a recession, I think, I hope, but that doesn't mean we don't have a domestic recession and consumers might really, really struggle. And then if you have massive, massive defaults and we're talking about non-performing loans, you know, about half of them potentially um, for some of those buy now, pay later stocks. Where do they go from there? Because also the trap that often occurs is that in the last five years, can you raise money from the equity market? Yep, so easy. Just go to the market. People are, are, are going to throw money at it. Can they go to the bank? Maybe not so now. But once the bank closes and the equity market closes, to them, there's nowhere to go, mm. and that's why they they tend to they tend to fail. So, not making predictions are obviously, but the <laughs> that's the struggle. That is the real struggle with a lot of these companies. And in the US, the one thing going on, the one place where jobs aren't being created, if you if you go back, the number of people being laid off at tech firms is skyrocketing yeah. because they've all been told if we don't make money in the next twelve months, we're done. And so that will be the the struggle for any surviving stocks here in Australia as well in that space. Fascinating times, James. But uh, unfortunately, we have run out of time. We'll definitely have to get you back on the show, though, to uh, continue the discussion as things change in markets uh, over the next few months. If uh, our community have enjoyed listening, if you have enjoyed listening to James, he will be uh, speaking at our FinFest event in October um, with Perpetual there as well. So we're incredibly excited for that. But James, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, we thoroughly enjoyed your presentation at the ASX Investor Day as much as uh, we. I really took a lot out of this uh, conversation with you today, as I'm sure a lot of our community did as well. So thank you so much. Absolutely loved it, guys. Wonderful. Thanks, James. Equity Mates Investing Podcast is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. Equity Mates gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by a range of financial service professionals. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Equity Mates Media does not operate under an Australian financial services license and relies on the exemption available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect of any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast or video. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equity Mates website, where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equity Mates Media and the hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.